Mustache Tales. Yeah! Hey, it's Jay Chandra Sekar and my podcast partner. Am I introducing you? Hey, it's MacArthur. Thank you. That's uh, an illustrious introduction. Thank you. And uh, this is the Mustache Tales podcast. I'm going to start by telling a little mustache tale. Um, I'm going to tell the the story of how uh, Broken Lizard came to make the movie Beer Fest. Uh, So we were, uh, we sold Super Troopers to Fox Searchlight and you know, at the time, uh, the movie division was still owned by Rupert Murdoch. So there was a connection to Australia for Searchlight Films and Fox Films in general. They basically sent us to Australia to promote uh, the film Super Troopers. Now, what preceded this was we had been on the road in the United States going to all these different cities, showing Super Troopers, getting people revved up. And we, you know, what they would, Searchlight would do is they would throw us a screening and then a big party. We would get absolutely wrecked. And then the next morning we would have press and then they'd move us to another city. We'd have another screening and another big party. We'd get absolutely wrecked. So we got a reputation, I guess, because when we were at the Austra- at the airport at LAX getting ready to fly to Australia, Peter Rice, the president of Fox Searchlight, randomly shows up at the airport. And he goes, I want you to represent us well down there, fellas. And we're like, yeah, sure, of course. And he goes, well, you know your nickname at Searchlight is Drunken Lizard. Uh, and we were like, okay, pal, you're the one throwing us the parties, right? So we fl- we fly down to Australia, uh, and you know we're in these first class seats, and it was you know some of us had never been in first class before, let alone 18 hours to Australia. And Eric Stolhansky brought um, he brought he brought pop brownies. Um, which were not calibrated properly. And so, and it was a night flight. Uh, and so a couple people really lost their fucking minds. Like Soder got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and first class was so big, he got lost and he was just standing there and he was standing there. And finally, Hefferton, who's awake because he's, shr- he's tripping basically, gets up and goes, what are you doing? And he goes, and he, he led him back to the seat. <laughs> Lemmy tried uh, on a bet from Heffern, and this is during the daytime, to eat an entire orange in one bite, uh, which he got it in, but it just poured down his shirt. It was just orange. He was just covered in orange juice. And we were obviously drinking like drunken lizards. So we land on the ground in Sydney, which is, to me, a magical place where everybody's cracking jokes all the time. Like my favorite thing about Sydney was uh, we were at the um, Fox, uh, main Fox Australia, and the president of Fox was showing me and Kevin around, and we went into an elevator. Now, this is the Harvey Weinstein story partially, right? Because Harvey Weinstein went back in the day in New York when he was on an elevator. If the assistant saw him on the elevator, they didn't get up, right? They just were like, nope, nobody gets on the elevator with Harvey. Now, this guy is on the elevator with two, you know, whatever, stars, right? Uh, future stars, maybe. And um, this young guy has to be maybe 21. He, door opens. He steps on the elevator. I'm like, yeah. Uh, and 
they they're kind of looking each other over the president of Fox and the, and uh, this is the president of Fox, not Fred Sertet, President Fox Australia. He's looking at the young guy, um, uh, and he's he's basically like, you know, looking him over, and the the intern looks at the guy and he goes, uh, "Hey, I I, uh, I I like your shit." He says that to the president of the um, of of Fox Searchlight, and and the president looks at him and he goes, "Yeah, I picked it up off your sister's floor last night," and they both burst into laughter, and I'm like. What the hell happened there? And so then the the intern gets <laughs> what, 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 what that that accent that was an Australian accent, right? I like your shit. Anyway, so the <laughs> the young guy gets off the elevator, and I'm like, "Who the hell was that?" And he goes, "Hey, I don't know. I think he's a new intern." And I'm like, "Wow, this is such a great country where you just joke around with power. I love it." Um, so then we're like on the road, and we're. And we're, you know, nobody knows who the hell we are in Australia. Nobody. But they keep, so they're like, you have to put on your cop uniforms and we're going to go to all the interviews, right? So we're, I was any better? Yeah, it's getting, it's trending upward. Got it. Yeah. And um, so now we're like, you know, they're taking us to everywhere you can imagine. Anywhere there, there are people. They took us to a tire store open and we cut a ribbon and they were serving meat pies. And we ate those, and we're wearing these cop uniforms. Everyone's like, you know, Australia, if you remember, was started as a penal colony. So they're not very friendly to cops. They don't love cops. But here we are dressed like cops. Nobody knows who the fuck we are. We're trying to get them to see the movie. It's playing well, whatever we show. So now they take us to, they're like that, that they take us to a mall. And a guy in a tuxedo is waiting on a little stage, and he goes, he goes, everybody join around. The super troopers from America here. And all these mothers and young children who are there in the mall during the day show up and we're like clapping for us. And we're like, how is anybody going to see this movie? And finally, our our our, our publicist, uh, Leslie, is like, let's go to a beer garden. You guys are absolute drunks. This might be your, these might be your people. So we go into this beer garden and of course we're dressed like cops, right? And they are, you know, she's like, you got to get up on stage and talk about the movie, right? And the place is packed with drunk Australians. And it's the daytime and we're like, I don't know. So so we get up on stage and we're like, they're like, fuck you, Copa, yelling at us. And we're like, quiet, quiet, quiet down. And and Steve, Steve and, and I'm like, yeah, hey, we're uh, the super troopers. We made a movie. They're like, like yelling at us. And Steve Lemmy, grabs the mic and says crocodile dundee fucks koala bears and the place explodes right like do they really care about crocodile dundee i don't know but they avoided they fucking lose it and he goes i want to challenge the top five guys in this room to a chug off and so five dudes line up and we chug against these guys and we're doing a classic boat race where you each guy's going to drink two beers. You start at one end, you go all the way to the end. The anchor man drinks two, and you come all the way back. You go now, back, a snake. You go back. Right. So now we're fast. I mean, we're like professional chuggers, except for one of us. So the race starts, and we are smoking these massive Australian dudes. Smoking until we hit Soder. Okay, Soder's number four. And he's like, glug, 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 glug. And they pass us, right? Now... Now they're ahead of us, and Heffernan has to drink too. He goes, boom, boom, we're back ahead of him again, right? 
but now we have to go back through a soda. And he's like, glug, glug, glug. And they get ahead of us. Then it's me. Then it's still Hansky. Then it's Lubby. And we just barely lose. And they're like, ah, yo, wah, you know, and they won, right? So then we're like, all right, we'll challenge you to an arm wrestling contest because we've been arm wrestling quite a bit back then. And we win. We win four out of five soda again. We win four out of five of those arm wrestling contests, right? And then Lemmy grabs the mic and says, Russell Crowe fucks kangaroos. And the place goes, ah! And I mean, literally people are like tossing garbage at us. And Leslie's like, we got to get out of here. And so we fucking go out of that tour into the waiting van, which has started. And we jump in. Nobody was chasing us, but they were ready to kill us. And we screech off. And Heffernan looks back and goes, that would make a pretty good movie. Uh, and and that is the origin story of what we eventually turned into Beer Fest. That, so you guys promote, you have these films, they come out, you promote them. You have an experience promoting them with the guys that you've grown up with making the films and the one idea, the stuff that comes up in live time can become other movies, other ideas or make their way into stories. That's right. The question is, and I've never asked you this, did you set a bar for yourself in your 20s that you now regret today in terms of interacting with strangers, promoting your material, and having people come up and try to out-chug you, out-smoke you, uh, out-drink, out embarrass you, take your clothes off, all the stories that happen? Does that, is that something that maybe you would have rethought and done like Maybe a romantic comedy, your first one out of the gate or something more talky. I think at the end of the day, we write the jokes that we find funny. And many of those jokes happened in bars. And so, the, you know, once we moved them to the screen, we had to fit them around, you know, sometimes alcohol and weed. And, and it, it just, they, they felt, they, if, if they feel authentic, it's because they are. Um, and so the reality is, I don't regret it. I mean, look, for a long time, everywhere I went, people would walk over with two shots of whiskey. And I fucking hate whiskey. Uh, and I know that makes me a pussy. But uh, I, uh, I, I, I mean, it's not the only thing, but it's, it's, it's one of the things. <laughs> right. So I was like, I don't fucking like whiskey. And, and, but it's too late. They're holding the shot of whiskey. So, I already drink a lot when I'm on the road doing stand-up. And there I, I'm like, I've got a calibrated system where I'm going to have, you know, X number of vodka sodas. It's not quite double digits, but it's, you know, it's in the neighborhood. I've gotten a double, but I generally I try to keep it under. And But if you add two or three, four shots of whiskey, I'm like zooming off the moon. And I do not drink for other people. So what I started doing is I started doing in my stand-up act, I would specifically talk about not liking whiskey and liking vodka and now uh, or beer and now people walk up to me with pints of beer um because they want a chance to chug they get to test their metal so uh, it's it, whiskey doesn't happen anymore whiskey and occasionally vodka will show up but but yeah I, I, you can manipulate the fans that way if you put it out there. just let them know what what you don't let them know your likes as you're going and then you don't have to confront that as an awkward conversation there's nothing worse than when someone buys you a drink or a shot and is looking to bond and you just totally shut them down. Right. I mean, in Baton Rouge, people kill up with shots and I would be so hammered. I just go like this, wing, and throw it over my shoulder. That's the moat. 
So I was down in Baton Rouge shooting Dukes of Hazard, and some guy walked up to me with two shots of whiskey. And I mean, we were wrecked. I was out with Knoxville, and we were just ripping it up, right? And I just, I just had too many. I just had too many. And I took the shot, and I went, whoop, and I threw it over my shoulder, and I hit a dude in the face. And he goes, he bows up. He goes, what the fuck? That was in Australia. That was Southern. Uh, and I turn, he goes, oh, shit, Super Trooper, how you doing, man? And he has whiskey all over his face. <laughs> I was like, woof. Anyway. Um, but now, you know, I'm just glad that, I'm glad those whiskey days are over. I hope they continue to be over. You know, I just like vodka and I like chugging beer. You got recognized. That dude would have knocked you to Tuesday if oh, he didn't see yeah. Super Troopers. Oh, see, I, yeah. That reminds me of, of a, a bar story with David Carradine of Kung Fu Fane, the great David Carradine, Kill Bill, who is someone that I did my first project with in Austin, Texas. And they, he got away with so much stuff because he was David Carradine. And I, for me, it was my first time being around someone of that magnitude that was that lovable that could get away with it. We were saddled up in the back of this bar on 6th Street in Austin called Chug and Monkey. You've been to this? Yeah. It's a, like a yeah. UT bar. Yeah. And David's just, just, just spinning yarn, just telling like the, some of the most incredible stories. I'm, you know, 22 years old and the most captive audience in the world and I'm just locked on him. So he's got a, a real audience of one to me. And a guy comes up to him and says, interrupts his story and says, Mr. Carradine, I, I just want to say I grew up watching this is like a guy in like khaki pants and a golf shirt who was down there yeah. for like an insurance convention. This is Mr. Carradine. I just want to say I was such a huge fan of Kung Fu growing up and the, with the, the lessons of, of Zen, uh, psych, uh, psychology and then the way you played that role with the shaved head was just, it's an iconic memory for me. And to see you in person is incredible. And Carradine slaps him in the face, just looks at him and goes, Boom, right across the face. And I I fall to the ground laughing. I go, she, I think this bar is going to explode. Like I, there's going to be 10 guys. It's on. And I'm like, David, geez, you can't do that, man. You can't, you can't just hit people like that. And he goes, I'm smart enough. I'm dumb enough to do it once. Smart enough not to do it twice. The guy watches, <laughs> the guy watches our exchange. He looks at us like there's like a five second dead pause where I don't know if he's making a fist and he just starts laughing and he looks at David and he thanks him and walks away. <laughs> and David goes, because now he's got a story. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's incredible. It was just the chutzpah of being in a, a, a public setting when you're, when you got a recognizable career. The, the other thing we went, we walked back that same night, we walked back to the Driscoll hotel, uh, in Austin and there was a wedding taking place and David Carradine loved to play the piano and he wrote his own songs. He was a real crooner, if you will. And we walked by this wedding. He too? Oh, he sang. Yeah. Okay. He okay. had I love you now and I always will. We'll be holding hands until the end of time and people would like gather around the piano as he was singing like everywhere we went 
So we walk by this wedding. And again, he was doing someone a favor. They're at the reception. The bride and groom are on the dance floor. And Carradine just walks right up to the piano unannounced, like a 250-person wedding in a ballroom, and starts playing the piano and singing like I just did. (laughs) And everyone starts clapping. And then he walks out and goes back to the bar. I mean... That's the kind of story that Bill Murray does, where he just shows up right. at a party. Right. You know? the, the, yeah, the Bill Murray, yeah, the folklore around these guys. I mean, now, Bill Murray, you've, we've caught him a couple times on cell phones giving toasts at, like, bachelor parties and bachelorette parties down in Charleston. Yeah. And he just must bomb around. Because growing up in Chicago, there was always that story that there was a kid at a urinal at, in Wrigley Field do, do you know this one where yeah. Bill Murray? So the story goes that there's a, this guy taking a piss at a urinal and he gets shook from ba- the back. Some guy comes up and shakes his hips and he pisses all over the seat. And the guy turns around and Bill Murray says to him, no one will ever believe you. <laughs> I mean, you have to be a little bit of a lunatic to do that kind of, I mean, because you never know. You never, <laughs> you never know. I guess with him, but though, you everybody got... knows him. Everybody. Yes, yes. And I don't think that there was, I mean, it was true, you know, in 93, there was no way of capturing that moment. You wouldn't have done a selfie in the bathroom. There was, right. it was just up to that guy to tell the story and then people right. to believe whether it was really him or not. Right. I love it. Well, Ronnie, you were kind of drunk. Are you sure it was Bill Murray? You know, they would have. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, but I've I noticed mean, just... that when I, well, when I've been out with you guys, I see that it's a constant, and I think it's it's really a hole that you dug for yourselves. It's it's people just want to drink and party with the broken lizard guys. They do. They really do. Um, and it, and and we oblige. I mean, we, you know, when we're on the road. You know, we'll, we we know what they need, and they need us to outdrink them. And so yeah. we, we, tr- we, we, you know, we go, we go as hard as we possibly can. <laughs> my, brother, my brother always talks about when he hangs out with old friends, and there's like a big guy's weekend coming up, and he's having his like uh, kind of pregame jitters. He, he calls and we'll have a conversation. He's like, I'm going to take it easy this weekend. You know, I'm not going to go blow it out. I'm going to keep the throttle down. And and then he comes to his own realization. And he says, you know what, though? With these weekends, when you're hanging out with guys, no one wants to be hanging out with a new guy. They don't want to have, like, a new right. version of you. Right. Sober Scott. You want to tell, they don't want to sober Scott. They want to, even with any friend you're hanging out with, like, you you appreciate the room for growth, but you don't know how to relate to them if they're coming at you with right. new angles and the right, new right. behaviors and different stuff. Right. You owe it to them to just be the same old drunk you always were. <laughs> That's the slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So uh, Hayes and I are both from Chicago. Uh, well, you're from the city of Chicago. I'm from the suburbs, Hinsdale, uh, which is 20 minutes west. Um, <laughs> but you're from downtown, right? It's funny that you said 20 minutes west because, yes, I'm from uh, downtown Chicago and I love all Chicagoans and Midwesterners. And uh, I I feel that when people say they're from Chicago and they're from the suburbs, it's always like, well, that's not really Chicago. 
Right. But for right. me, the suburbs, 20 minutes west, I, I know where Hinsdale is now because I'll go up the north to those suburbs. I'll go down the south to those, but the western suburbs are a different, a right. different, uh, each one has its own identity. I know yeah. none of them. What may, yeah. what would make Hinsdale, Hinsdale as opposed to, uh, it's like Harvey it's, or Lake Forest. It, it's sort of like, I would call it probably our, the, it's the Western suburbs, Lake Forest. All right. Um, and there's another one called Oak Brook, which is sort of the Western suburbs, Highland Park. Great mall. Huge mall. Oh, yeah. Iconic right, mall. Yeah. Right. Mass. Um, uh, an outdoor mall, which I like. I think it's tough. You know, Chicago is a tough outdoor mall. Really high end, but outdoor. You know, we we don't. You know, I always people always say it's cold, and I say, I, and I say, you know, you never hear that in Chicago because if you say it's cold in Chicago, you're not from Chicago, right? You know, no, yeah, of course it's cold. Why don't you waste so much yeah, time I, with that fucking statement for it? I, I took my kids to Chicago when uh, we were we'd been in uh, L.A. for a, a bunch of years, and when they became sentient beings enough to complain about the elements it was very windy in chicago coming off the lake and we were standing uh going across michigan avenue and i stood about 50 feet back from the curb behind one of the buildings and i just watched them get their hats blown and their jackets and stuff and i they said why are you standing back there i said well here's the trick when you're in chicago you use the buildings to block the wind yeah it's part of yeah. one right. of the things that you know what to do that's right and where did you go to high school? I so I grew up um, like in Belmont Harbor, Wrigleyville area, just yeah. a little uh, like two miles north of uh, of downtown of Michigan Avenue in an apartment building. So like my backyard was uh, Lincoln Park. That's where we would go play catch right next to Lakeshore Drive. With like if the ball went in the street, you just no one could go get it. It's like a freeway. How did and then but, uh, yeah, good. No, and then I, yeah, I was there uh, all, for my whole childhood. And you were you were a high school football player. I played. Um, so this is actually how I got to know something that I've realized later. Uh, Chicago is is an incredibly segregated city. Um, it's a major city, but there's just certain people with certain backgrounds lived in certain neighborhoods. And so I grew up um, in Lincoln Park, and I didn't really realize how mixed the city was till I started playing Pop Warner football in fourth grade. And when I'd play Pop Warner football, I, we played up in uh, Rogers Park. Um, kids were coming from all over. And that's when I started getting really exposed to kids from different, like completely different backgrounds. And I saw really what happens in 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 the city different uh the the crime elements and kids were already gang banging at you know 11 12 13 years old um, wow. but we were on this we were on this team up in rogers park and it was um it was coached by all chicago police officers off-duty chicago police officers and so really i realized I played for four years on that team. I realized that the whole purpose of that Pop Warner team was the Chicago police officers keeping the kids in a group. And it was kind of like a, like a youth, uh, a youth program 
for kids to give them something positive to focus on, which was mm-hmm. football. And through that, I went to all the different parts of Chicago when we would play different teams. And I, that's how I kind of got to know the, the city outside. Cause otherwise if you're downtown in Chicago, your, your world could be a two mile radius. You know, like if you're lucky enough to go to a Hawks or a Bulls game, that would take you out to the West side. But all the restaurants, the beach, the park, everything is just right there. You know, you, yeah. you don't go that far. Um, and there's not much around even Chicago as a city. Uh, you get out, maybe go to Wisconsin, like Rylander, get up into the Great Lakes. But you were really, it's almost like an urban island there. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Like people talk about how dangerous Chicago is. They're like, you've never seen a single crime or, or a single gun go off and uh and i think it's just because of the neighborhoods that i went to you yeah. know i never it never i mean look occasionally we would drive we we had a motorcycle right while we were in college we had no helmet we used to drive with shorts and at like two in the morning we'd drive into cabrini green because they had a great hot dog stand right across the street from cabrini green and it was me and my friend uh vk who was another indian guy we always were like well we're not white you know they, they see us as sort of like them too and so we drive into this like you know this rough neighborhood and this motorcycle yeah. and we get hot dogs and we never had a problem i mean it was never right. a problem nobody ever said shit the cabrini green is right next to the school i went to uh up until eighth grade and that was one of the elements of the city i was just talking about so clark and north avenue um has a school there and it's like the old town area and then literally right next door is Cabrini Green. And you think of the history of those, the housing projects and how they started. Remember, they were built for Vietnam veterans coming back to uh, the country for, and it was affordable government housing oh. for vets. Yeah. And then th- it became uh, subsidized in different ways and it became its own community that existed with a lot of violence and drugs, but right alongside like a nice retail area in Old Town. And there was almost, you know, there's no fences. I never felt threatened. We'd walk around. I took the CTA bus to school, but there was like this kind of invisible wall where the drugs never crossed that street. And so we could go to that hot dog stand, you know, but we didn't dip in, you know, you'd go 50 feet, 60 feet over and you were in an entirely different universe. Uh, and I think that's what, well, I mean, we could talk for, we've had conversations about what's happening now with the city, but all those different, uh, it's all kind of, uh, mixing now, right? Yeah. Like, so the high crime areas are being felt more in, in the whole city. It always no, existed. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. It just wasn't, you wouldn't know. And now more people know because they feel right. it and they see it. Right. Uh, we met, um, because of football, because we, I, I was hired to do a um, uh, a pilot for Amazon called uh, The Rebels, uh, and we needed uh, someone to play quarterback, and the producer, uh, Matt Alvarez, maybe? Yeah. Remember him? Yeah, he was sure. like this guy, Hayes MacArthur, played football at in college at Bowdoin, uh, and a little bit of semi-pro after. Um, uh, and I was like, oh, okay, he's from Chicago. Okay, cool. And then you walked in, and we kind of immediately, I think we vibed on comedy in Chicago, and and, and it was, you know, and I, I remember throwing, uh, uh, you played the quarterback of the team, I remember throwing 
a football with you on the beach in Venice. And I'm like, I mean, I mean, when you throw a football with somebody who threw a football on a college team, it's a whole different fucking situation. Like it was painful to catch that ball. Uh, and if you can, you know, I mean, you know, and when you watch, you watch the NFL and you see like Jay Cutler throw those things at 300 miles an hour, you're like, why did you catch it in your hands? You're like, I know why. It was too fucking fast. It was too fucking no, fast. That, I remember that day on the beach throwing the football and it was a show that was a remake of the HBO show called like First and Ten. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was right. about the owner, the the wife of a uh, the wife of an owner um, taking over the team. Yeah, and the yeah, the quarterback, uh, like an old veteran quarterback, has a, a relationship with her, and it's a little bit like they're like the bad news bears. Yeah, and so it, it was. A, I remember throwing the football on the beach, and and the gag that day was there were all these uh, garbage cans set up on the beach, and I was yeah supposed to throw 10 in a row into a garbage right. can so you could see that this character threw yeah and i i remember saying i've really got to put these balls in the can for this gag uh-huh. to work uh-huh. <laughs> and then matt alvarez says no no we're gonna this is all gonna be a gag we're gonna make every ball look like it goes in i'm like you can yeah. do that <laughs> oh yeah once the ball leaves your hand it we paint it out and create a new ball right. and take it right into the garbage can. And then we shake. Yeah, can. you referenced something. There was some commercial at the time and you're like, we're going to do that. We're just going to yeah. have you throw it and then we're going to film it yeah, going Once in. it leaves your hand, we're good to go. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I remember that. Uh, I remember that when we did first meet, I went in to audition for that show and there was an element where the, this character's really washed up and he needs to he needs to play for this team to salvage his career. And so we improvised a lot. And uh, I just remember, because I think I was reading with you, and I just looked at you and said, I need a job, man. And, and, and everyone was like, that's great. That's it. That's the character. And I was just like, I was, I mean, I'm not method, but I was just truthfully telling you that I needed the job. Uh, and then after that, we made the film The Baby Makers. Um, right. The premise of that film is that Paul Schneider uh, used to be a sperm donor, and then he, in the intervening years, suffered testicular trauma. And now when he's trying to have a baby with his wife, Olivia Munn, he can't get her pregnant because his sperm's no good anymore. So he goes back to the sperm bank and asks for his own sperm back, and they're like, we only have one sample, and we've already sold it to a gay couple. And then... um, so he goes to see that gay couple. You're one of them. And the other one is, is it Tommy Dewey? No. It was the, oh, no, no. It was Mark Evan Jackson. Yeah. Um, and you guys are like, look, we'd really love to help you, but we really love your bone structure and your attitude. And we want to, we want to have the baby with your sperm. And <laughs> Mark Evan Jackson leaves. And then you make him an indecent proposal. You make Paul Schneider an indecent proposal which is in your holding that football and you're basically like, I'll, I'll give you your sperm back if, if we can fuck or something, something like that. Um, and, uh, right. he doesn't, there are two do very doesn't. different, two very different characters. <laughs> That's right. Uh, both and then football players. <laughs> the both football players. And then after he says, no, that's when he and Kevin Hefferton, uh, decide that they're going to break into the sperm bank to steal that one sample back before you guys can get it. 
Um, and then right. they hire me, who's the criminal. <laughs> and Nat Faxon is also their their buddy. And uh, uh, the guy who played uh, Avon Barksdale. Uh, um, uh, how do you remember his name? Uh, he was also in Wood. Uh, the guy who yeah. played Avon Barksdale in The Wire. Um, Woods. I don't know. He's a great actor. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the, then, the, then we all have the sperm bank heist where we try to steal the sperm bank. Anyway, that, that's- a, I remember that's you a, describing that. You just, I was like, what's this, what's this movie about? Cause we had worked together before and you're like, it's a, it's a heist movie. And I go, <laughs> oh, like a bank, bank robbers. You're like, yeah, the bank is a sperm bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? So <laughs> why would you rob a sperm bank? <laughs> and then you tell me the whole story. Yeah, that's right. Um, but anyway, and after that, we were we were uh, you were in Super Troopers too, playing one of the Canadian Mounties. Um, well, there was one before that. I remember um, uh, an Amazon show, another Amazon oh, show, right. that you had written. Right, I think you were writing a novel about the story of a group of friends where one of them has an affair with the other one and it blows up a group of, uh, it just right. affects this I'm whole gonna... group that have hung out forever. Um, and this is the that first, was... no, that's not the wrong thing. But anyway, uh, this, what was that? The script you held up? Yeah, that, that was super strippers three. This is oh. the novel, the wild and the tame, right? Um, which I'm almost done with. Uh, but yeah, we did that, uh, and then uh, and then we did Super Troopers too. So we, we've done well. A the idea behind stuff. that, right, was it was a group of friends, and what two of them hook up that are aren't part of the same couple, and yeah, then there are it's four just couples. All out. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Four couples. There's there's an affair going on in between two of them, and then it just unwinds the whole group. That's sort of what the story was. And that was the first time when. Because you had written it as like a serialized, like a continuation where instead of every episode being able to stand on itself, you were telling a longer story. Yeah. Uh, which at the time was just starting to be done. Yeah. I I am going to, I mean, this, you know, that, that, um, that show on Amazon was, you know, at the time they did this popularity contest, right? So when we did The Rebels, that was the second most popular show and somehow Amazon didn't pick it up because they're like, well, we don't think our people like football. And we're like, what? The whole fucking kind of, it's a popularity contest. Yeah. We were number two. So they didn't pick it up. But they're like, oh, that's all right. We'll do this other thing really. Now, really was also the second most popular show. And we were and we were told, okay, we're going to shoot it in Atlanta and, da, 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 and we're all going to go down there. And we were budgeting and suddenly the wife of a very top executive at Amazon watched it. And she said, I, I don't like infidelity. I don't like the topic. And so it was. I was told it was killed. And I don't know who that wife was, but I am pretty goddamn sure it was Bezos' wife. I'm pretty damn sure. Um, uh, because of whatever. I, I'm, I'm speculating. She, she walks I'm into the room. She's like, uh, honey, this Amazon pilot, I don't like the premise. And he's like, I'm working on a rocket right now, honey. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. Sure. Right. Whatever you want. Whatever yeah, you want. Sure, Cancel sure, it. You lose sure. all those jobs. That's right. So, so, so that never. I went. remember and us I got... being really ups upset about it because it was presented when Amazon first started doing programming. Is they were going to democratize uh, the yeah. 
pr- the programming experience so you could vote. Yeah. And we were saying, we, for Al Gore, we, we won the popular vote. How could we That's not right. have gotten picked up? That's right. That's right. We couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe that show business was unfair. Um, that was me, you, Sarah Chalk, Selma Blair, uh, Lindsay. Anyway. Luca. Yeah, yeah, Luca Jones. It was great. It was a great cast. Uh, 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 Delaney was, was that? Rob, Rob Delaney. Delaney. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a great cast. It was a great cast. Uh, but I got so, this is sort of a window into my soul, which is like, when I really want to do something, I, like, I, I we, well, my feelings were a little hurt on the, when they said no to really. So I said, fuck you, I'm going to write the novel. I'm going to make the novel popular, and then I'm going to railroad this television, back, this show back onto TV. So <laughs> there's nothing like telling me no to ensure that something is eventually going to get made. Yeah. Well, I love your your tactic of writing a novel for a bookstore that was making television shows. That was that was your back door. That's right. That's right. And, and I'm almost done with this damn thing. I'm Are almost you still done working with on thing. it. It, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish it probably within a week, and it's you know it's about 380 pages long, and it goes through the whole fucking story. And so now, you know, if if we, if we get to television, I'll be able to just you know, and your character is an anesthesiologist. I it's I, while we're talking about it, and I'm, I we fondly remember her often, but I remember you talking about the novel and the first draft, and who you gave it to to read, and didn't you get give an early copy to Jamie Tarsus? I did. Right? That was a, a story you told me one night when we were just yapping on the phone. Yeah, Jamie Tarsus was, was, she developed Friends uh, at NBC, and then uh, also Frasier, and then became the president of ABC at like 32, first woman president. And she and I, she was the producer on really, and she and I became very, very, very close friends. Like whenever I wrote anything, I would send it to Jamie Tarsus first because she was the best non-writing she didn't write scripts she just produced them which means creatively produced them so she would give you her opinion on it and the structure and this and that and so she to me was like one of the most important people in my life from a creative perspective and she's passed away unfortunately but uh but uh before she passed away i sent her the novel um and she read it and at the time it was like 500 pages (laughs) And she's like, I love it. I love it. I love it. You got to cut 100 pages. Uh, hey. And we talked for two or three hours about it and all the details and this and this. And and, and I was like, 100 pages? It's impossible. But I, I did it. I cut 110 it pages. It speaks to what a special person that she was because she was incredibly down to earth and understood comedy so well and shepherded such great shows. But then for you to give, it's really hard when you send anyone anything whether it's a relative or, or, or an executive or yeah. an agent, to get them to read even a 30-page, half-hour script. I know. And to, to, for you to give her a, a novel, an overwritten novel in your, yeah. In, yeah, at that time, and to get feedback uh, right away and to have it be you know thoughtful and in-depth, was that's really cool. It was critical to the development of this book, her, her yeah. insight. And it was the last time I got to get get info from her like that and it was you know it, it's tragic it's tragic it, it, it breaks my heart yeah. um and you but, still have not finished the book well it takes a long time to write a fucking book man i mean 
because you keep, you know, there that it's, it's 394 pages. So there are like so many setups and so many jokes and so many payoffs. And sometimes I'm reading it again. I'm like, I just did this joke on page 40. And I'm like, I got to take it out here. And it's just a lot of massage. So it's almost done. It's almost done. Um, we're uh, on strike. The WGA. Yeah. Happened uh, last night. But what did you think of? Because the only thing I am relating it to is the last one, which was 100 days and being out there in front of the studios. And I see it happening again, getting, you know, pictures of friends and, and they're out there picketing. And and this feels a little different because everything's changed so much. I mean, we just spoke about early days of Amazon doing shows and where shows could live and how they got distributed and all these issues were, I mean, that pilot, I think that we did for Amazon back then was like on a shoestring budget because it was still like, oh, it's streaming. Yeah. It's not a real show. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mozart in the Jungle, which was that same year, I think like ended up winning Emmys, you know, so yeah. it is. No, apparently it is like a network. It is. It is. And, and you know, I, I, I sold a golf television show to Amazon uh, the day before, the night we went on strike. So we were like, the lawyers are furiously, for the first time in, in the history of my career, the lawyers are trying to get a deal done. Um, and they, they just were back and forth and in two days, they get the whole deal done. You're like, what the hell are you going to steal? This just takes weeks, sometimes months to get a deal done. Anyway, they got it done and I appreciate that. But, um, but it's a great deal. Amazon gave us a great deal. Uh, yeah. what and, do you think are the main it. issues? What do you think are the main issues this time with the strike? The main around? issues as I understand them are. In, in no particular order, they want to avoid AI being used to write scripts, and it's not the 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 reason is not because uh, uh, we don't think technology and innovation are you know tools are tools you can use them. But what the way AI works is if if you feed all whatever eight ten broken lizard movies into a computer, then you say give me a broken lizard movie about this topic, it can spit out. Uh, a, a movie on that. I don't know if it's any good on that topic right. based on what we told it already with the way our rhythm is and the jokes and the way we describe stuff. Now, WGA is like, Hey man, we, we gave it the, the information so that it could write that. Right. So it's like, it's not writing in a vacuum. It's taking pre-written stuff and, you know, so yeah. they said, we want it to be banned from use and the studios like, We'll talk to our producers about that, but they would not commit to that. Um, the other thing, yeah, is, they, they're they're saying well, let's let's pin it and revisit it in a couple of years, which is also like it's probably going to be normalized in a couple of years. That's right. That's right. Yeah. As soon as you know, it's that great uh, line in the player, the Robert Altman movie, because uh, they're talking about Larry Levy, uh, played by. Um, uh, uh, God, he's on friends with this guy. Anyway, he says, he says, if we could only, uh, if we don't need the writers. We can just open the newspaper and there's a story right there, right? There's a story. We, what do we need to pay all these writers when we got stories right out of the newspaper? He goes, man saves penguin from zoo. Woman uh, lifts car to save her child. The, the stories are right here. Let's make, and, and then um, Tim Robbins, who plays the executive that Larry Levy's trying to replace, goes, yeah. We could only get rid of the actors and directors. We'd be onto something. 
you know, and you're like, that that's what they want, right? They want to replace us with fucking machines if they can't, because, you know, the machine doesn't get any per diem. The machine doesn't get paid. So that's what we're trying to fight. That's one thing. That's one. The other thing is um, we, you know, uh, I, I've directed shows for streaming and for network. If I do a show for streaming, you get paid once and that's fine. It's a very good salary, but you never get paid again because it's like Netflix. It's available in all these different countries. They don't take the thing and sell it in Canada, in Australia. Right. In Now, in when I direct the Goldbergs, you get paid that first time and then you get paid for years and years and years because it's selling in reruns. It's selling to Europe. It's selling to Germany. It's selling to Australia. In all that money, you get a little piece, a little residual piece of that profit. So what the WGA is saying, let's make the residuals the same regardless of whether it's streaming or network. I would argue that it's not even that uh, model anymore because they, and this was kind of a battle that was fought and however you look at it, won or lost in the last strike, but they buy out the residuals up front. They do. So they create a they, formula, they, but- Yeah, and the tricky thing about that, they create a formula and it's however little stipend up front when you do it, you have no residuals, which is how actors- made their living in between jobs for yeah. generations. But the thing about front loading the residuals up front is that people can take commissions off of that fee at that time because it's negotiated. So right. it's depending on how you're represented could be up to 25% yeah. of yeah. your residuals that were supposed to be in perpetuity. Right. So there's already, I look at, I frame it like there's already been a lot of compromise in these new you know formats and it didn't feel like actors writers directors uh even crew people have come out on top of of people multiply watching no. something and and it's it's a situation where it's uncapitalist right like the old way was if a show is popular if a movie is super popular then it's resold and resold and more people see it and you get more money in residual. Now, whether it's, you know, some show that nobody watches or it's Game of Thrones, the director has still been paid. You know, right. they've been paid that one time. Now HBO is a little different, but but you know what I'm talking about. Like if it's on, on like a Netflix show, like it, they've been paid and that's it. And just what what the WGA is saying is let's base it on how many people actually watch it. And we'll figure out a, a residual based on that. Yeah, if there and, was only a way to measure this stuff with computers. They're, they it's, they it's, guard it's that never information. Been, it's never been easier to quantify. Yeah, they guard that information with with everything they've got. They're like, we don't we don't give that data out. And you're like, and it, hey. I mean, well, well, you can speak not? too. And I understand the difference between selling an eighteen dollar DVD, um, in after the movies come out, participating in that 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 those days are gone. I remember having during those days yeah. did a movie with the rock with Dwayne, the rock Johnson. And that was still when DVDs were, were coming out and I got checks for that for a couple of years. Now yeah. that movie would live somewhere else and you would never, it's just, you don't, you don't see it anymore, but the way of quantifying sales is actually gotten more precise. That's uh, right. I, I'm sure it's going to take a lot of 
<laughs> you know, manpower to figure it out. Or you could just ask chat GBT to figure it out. <laughs> How <would> it... <laughs> I mean, but like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. The la- I mean, the last thing that I know about is that they, they want to get rid of these mini rooms, which is like, you know, the Goldbergs had 12, 14 writers on a show. So all those people are employed. Now they're trying to do shows for like with four writers and, and that I don't, I mean, I, you know, I don't, have a strong opinion well, because about that. The, but the the episode orders have gotten smaller, smaller right? That's right. Yeah. He, so there's a difference between eight, yeah, ten. The the question is: Is are these streaming companies making a lot of because they don't have to make DVDs anymore? They don't have to like spend the money to make that. They just put it out, put it out. You know, like and a lot of these places don't. I mean, Netflix. I don't know how much they even advertise. Sometimes they're like, yeah, there it is, <laughs> there. You know, like, right. are they making tons of money and we're getting ripped off? And that's WGA's position is that we are. Um, yeah. and, so, and so we're on strike. I mean, you know, look, the last time was rough. Like, for me, it was like financially kind of, I took kind of a big fucking hit to it. Now, granted, I'm in show business and I direct movies and uh, wow, wow. But still, it was, it was, I remember it happening and being like, oh, it'll be great. It'll be fine. Doesn't matter. Like, and then boom, everything stopped for 100 days. And the, the ripple effect of that was almost like you had to restart your career. Um, well, yeah, but this is what I don't understand in terms of the different unions not coming together. And, and I, it could would be more complicated because there's such different uh, wants and needs on each side. But when the directors and the writers are on strike, the actors might as well be on strike too. Yeah, because it's a work stoppage, and it's it, it's right. Everyone is collaborative in, in, when in doing something. So when one entity needs to get their needs met, it becomes the needs of everyone else who's working yeah. to do stuff. Yeah, I mean the directors, I believe, uh, contracts up next month. Um, so I don't know. I mean the directors always strike a good deal because there are so few of us, uh, right. and for whatever reason, you know, I don't know if we're respected more. I think we probably are, not fairly, because without the writers, there's nothing. Um, yeah, but we always strike a deal that, that seems pretty good to us. Uh, and with the SAG union, yeah. I always have a lot of respect for the, the people who, who get paid a lot, um, doing the job when they show up and, and support the, the yeah. SAG causes because it's a totally different union. Cause I think, I don't know the percentage, but it's a small percentage of the union that is at work at any one given time and there's many more numbers than the wga and the dga so when those people step up to the plate um it helps get more stuff done yeah i mean you know they're they're predicting this one going anywhere from three to six months which boy buddy i mean but this time i've tried to strike proof my life a little like with this podcast right we're gonna get this mm-hmm. thing rolling um the novel is not covered by the wga and then i'm gonna do a stand-up special at thalia hall in chicago on july 21st um which i'm just gonna make and sell um, that's amazing are you gonna do so, it distribute it like uh on a website or youtube I'll, or are you gonna i'll either do it the way louis ck is doing it, which is off on a website or i will um sell it to you know netflix amazon or HBO or somebody, if somebody is the right deal, you know. Right. 
We'll see. Did you, we were talking about it this weekend. You went to the Willie Nelson 90th yeah. birthday party at the Hollywood Bowl. I and did. I thought I was, because I knew a lot of people that were there. And I'm thinking, was this, that had to be recorded as a special, right? It's a, it, it recorded Saturday and Sunday night. Uh, uh, there were television cameras. They recorded it all. You'd be able to see it all. And it was, you know, I only went to Sunday night, but I mean, you know, Nora Jones was out there singing a duet with Chris Christopherson. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, there were so many incredible performances, including when Keith Richards and Willie Nelson did a duet. You're just like, what the fuck? It was just, it was just, you know, and his Willie's son was out there, uh, Lucas, uh, and his other son, Micah, and Lucas, you know, he sounds a lot like his dad. And he and uh, Shooter Jennings did, um, uh, you know, one of those famous Willie and Waylon tunes. I don't know if it was Looking Back Texas. I think it was, um, uh, I've always been crazy. He's a good hearted woman <laughs> in love with a good time. And man, I think they did that one. Boy, do I love My that. friend was talking about that, uh, Willie and Waylon and the boys, the Looking Back Texas song. And, they were talking about uh, this guy, Scott Silveri. Uh, we send music back and forth sometimes. And he Scott. said, you know, yeah, he goes, you know what my favorite part of that song is? When it's Waylon, it's Waylon and Willie and the boys. And when it's Willie, it's Willie and Waylon and the boys. And he goes, they're still jockeying for position in right. Billy. That's right. That's right. It's funny. It's funny. And probably something they laughed at. Um, because nobody is funnier than Willie Nelson. I mean, that dude is a human joke machine. He just absolutely loves jokes. I got uh, to dip I, into the bus once uh, when we were filming uh, something in Boston together, and Willie did a show there at the Seaport District, and we all went. And I put my toe on the bus. It was so crowded, I didn't get into the uh, vortex of the Willie Nelson bus. But it was billed correctly. Got to on. Before. Yeah. <laughs> I got on. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was, uh, you know, when we were in Dukes of Hazard, we just, it was like he and I. That's where you got, you guys met at, during we, Dukes we, of Hazzard? We, we bonded so hard on that, on that show. Like we were just constantly smoking weed on that bus, just constantly. And it was always after the show, after and after we would shoot. And, you know, he, you know, we were, we would be going to dinner and I was like, come on over the bus before dinner. Let's get hungry. And I'm like, oh yeah. And we get on there, and sometimes when it was early in the in the thing, I was like, I was like, I just got to tell you, I'd be sitting across from his kitchen table. I'm like, you probably know this, but I'm a huge fucking fan of your music. And he goes, "What's your favorite song?" And I'm like, "Me and Paul." And he goes, "It's been rough and rocky traveling, but I finally got my feet here on the ground." And then he points at me, and I'm like. I've been taking several meetings, and I, you know, say my mind is fairly sound. And we go back and forth singing this song, and I'm like, "Is this happening? Is this uh, happening?" Then he right pulls on the out. Spot. Then he pulls out a bottle of whiskey river, right? And he just goes, "Block, block, block, block," hands it to me. And you're like, "I don't like, you're like, I, I don't do whiskey." Not oh, in that case. That, you're like, oh. I love whiskey. You know, I love whiskey. And he's, you know, and we're sort of drinking and we're smoking weed. And he's like, don't tell my wife because, uh, you know, I quit drinking. And we're like, <laughs> and, 
we just had a fucking ball. Um, I mean, we had a fucking ball, and it felt like he, you know, with me and Knoxville and 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 you know and Dave Keckner, uh, it felt like he had a couple of young buddies who he could run with again, uh, and we right. ran, we ran. <laughs> so what's the when you when you have a a, a strain that's as potent as Willie and you're in that context and let's say you get in your head a little bit if you stepped back from the situation and realized where you were and you're super baked do you have like what's what's the internal dialogue to keep you in the box is you know you see something weird like an awkward moment happens there's those lull those pauses that take place and it's much more insidious than right because he i I mean, I was on that bus a lot, right? And and they used to carry, you know, <laughs> but back when they were really touring, they used to carry a whole lot of fucking like cash, handguns, couple pounds of weed, and and some mushrooms. So, um, and I was like, this is what? And and yeah, it doesn't make things knew, easier. He knew, like, he knows that we're. <laughs> The broken lizard is sort of known for partying. You know, he knew that, and and so when he when I got on the bus once, I made the mistake of I'll tell the story in, in the next podcast, but because uh, it's a long one, I made the mistake of telling him I was pretty big smoker, and he brought out some special weed to knock you the fuck out, and it's not it's not leisure. He's trying to knock you the fuck out, and he did. Uh, and you know, the same thing happened with Snoop. He's like, Oh, big man smoker. And he fucking brought out some special weed and he knocked broken lizard the fuck out. So this not, it's not happenstance. It's not like, cause if it's just a bunch of like, you know, regular guys and business people and women, whatever, he'll bring out the mellow stuff and he could just smoke that all day. But you know, you gotta be careful with that man. Cause he's, he's a, he's a, uh, uh, he's got a funny mean streak. Yeah, it's like the, it's not passive aggressive, but it's the sneakiest mean streak in the world because it's getting you so zooted that you have to hang. He's trying to get you to stop and admit that he is superior to you. <laughs> but the story's so long, I'll tell it next time. Um, should we? I should we get? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking because uh, my uh, early experiences with uh, Ric Flair, because uh, he was—he's uh, been my father. They've been best friends since they were kids, since they were uh, fourteen years old, and um, he's been this kind of figure in in my life. And when he would come to town, and when I was maybe not of age yet, but I would be with some pretty big drinkers when it was the Four Horsemen and and Lex Luthor and, and Ric Flair. And, yeah. and I would try, my brother and I would try to keep our cool while keeping the pace with these grown ass giant men. And I remember I, the way I would get through it is my brother and I would just sidebar like, are you okay? Are you all right? You feel nauseous? We can keep going, right? Okay. Like we're cool. We're going to hang with these guys. And one, I mean, there's so many, many stories about those days, but one of the most vivid one uh, vivid ones is uh, when when Rick was in Chicago when he had first gone over to uh, the, uh, Vince McMahon's company. So you know wrestling used to be regionalized. There was like a Georgia wrestling uh, group and then a Midwest wrestling group yeah. and an East Coast wrestling league. 
Yeah. And Vince McMahon's big trick was he consolidated all the wrestlers and he put them under this one big umbrella. And so Rick had already really established himself as an iconic wrestler. And so he joined, um, at the time it was, um, when they first started doing Monday night nitro, which was, it, it still is a very high rated, uh, show. So he was in Chicago. There was this big production for it. And, uh, Steve McMichael, um, the yeah, great Mongo. uh, eight of the 85 Mongo of the 85 bears had just joined the four horsemen. So for me, this was worlds colliding. I mean, my childhood dream, Michael, the coolest that, guy, the coolest guy of the bears with Michael. Uh, an unbelievable guy, all, like all yeah. heart and just Mongo. And, and he was very endeared to the wrestling community because he had the persona of a wrestler to begin with. And I remember we were at a, a bar on uh, Division Street uh, after uh, one of these tapings and we got to go out with the four horsemen. And I'm trying to keep my cool and keep everything together. And uh, I think we were like at Mother's on Division. Yeah. yeah. And Mongo uh, kind of saw me maybe not drifting off, but just, you know, he saw me in a moment of awareness and observance of, of everything that was happening around me. And he pulled me outside on the street of division street and he squared me up by my shoulders. And, and I'm looking at a guy who, you know, won that super bowl when I was eight years old and it was a central figure to that 85 bears defense team. So this is a surreal moment. And my eye, my right eyes look in one way and my left eyes look in the other. And he grabs me by my shoulders and he goes, Hey, I'm going to tell you something, brother. There's one man in the world that you can't bullshit. And I'm like, Oh my, who is this person? Like, is it you? Can I not bullshit? I go, he goes, there's one man in the world that you can't bullshit. And that's the man in the mirror. Let's get back in there. That's, that's great advice. advice. That's I've, great. It's, it's it's the only advice you need. That's right. That's, that's right. Right. Don't sell yourself a con job. Don't con yourself. The man in the mirror. Just the man like, in the mirror. Yeah, I can't, I haven't dropped it on my son yet, but I'm waiting for that time. You know, I'm gonna hit, I'm when, gonna hit what, my son with that tonight. Yeah. What, gonna, hit, what, when am I gonna give him the man in the mirror speech? Is it <laughs> is it a bad report card? Is it when he gets in trouble? I, mean, I suppose you, you just don't want to waste it on nothing. No, you can't do it out of the blue. It's got you yeah. got to save it in your quiver. Sure, yeah. when you have a real big parental. Uh, it doesn't work so well on the wife. You can't you can't put. Your, Honey, there's one man you can't bullshit. <laughs> what? Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out. No, my wife wouldn't go for that. Um, should we uh, get out of the vouch? Yeah. I felt like the the way Rotten Tomatoes worked, I, I just didn't like it. It was like all these reviews from total strangers about movies, and they usually trash comedies, and I, I, wanted, to get, I wanted to change the system. So we built this um, app called Vouch Vault, uh, and they're a, you know, kind of a sponsor of this show. And so uh, we always, uh, you know, at the end of the show, we talk about what we're watching, what we're vouching, maybe a restaurant, maybe it's a movie, whatever. So I am going to vouch for this show um, on Apple TV. It's called Blackbird. Um, and Blackbird is starring uh, Taryn Egerton, uh, who 
I guess recently was in the Tetris movie, which is apparently about the Russian mob. Uh, and uh, it was he was also in Elton. He played Elton John. Um, sure. Yeah, in 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 that movie, now he is a tough, muscular, macho football player in this movie, and he's sort of a drug selling, gun runner kind of guy, or he has a lot of guns, and um, he gets arrested. This is based on a true story. He gets arrested, uh, and they think he's only going to have to do two years, but the judge throws a book at him, and he has to do, you know, ten, and then the FBI comes to him and says. There's a serial killer, we believe, in this uh, maximum security prison. Uh, and he might walk on a technicality unless we can get him to admit to where he's buried another woman we think he killed. So we want you to go in to that prison undercover. And if you do, we'll, you know, we'll let you out. Uh, and, you know, I love that kind of plot because that's actually yeah. the same plot as Supercop where Jackie Chan goes into a high security prison in Hong Kong, befriends a mobster and then comes out with the mobster and they, and they're now out in the street and, and Jackie Chan is a cop trying to, uh, you know, bring down the mobster and it's exciting and it's thrilling. And this Blackbird is so good. And, and it also stars check it out. my friend, Paul Walter Hauser, who played, sure. um, he played, uh, French Farva in uh, in in Super Troopers two he plays Lonnie Lelouch which is basically the if you see that movie he's the guy with the little shitty mustache and he's kind of chubby guy French Farva uh, and he plays uh, the the alleged uh, serial killer in this movie it's so goddamn good it's like six eight episodes uh, and I met Taron Egerton backstage uh, when he was promoting Tetris. Because I promoted uh, our film Quasi, which is on Hulu, by the way. Next Broken Wizard film Quasi, 12th century political thriller with English accents and blood uh, on Hulu, if you want to watch it. But but I was doing the Colbert show, and Taron Egerton was the first guest. He came off. We shook hands. We chatted for a little bit. Great guy. But anyway, love good it. show. Blackbird. I, love I, it. I was thinking Don, I was thinking of Donnie Brasco and uh, also The Departed when you were yes, talking about that show. Undercover. Right? with the mob yeah yeah it's a good it's a good kind of plot uh, i'm gonna vouch for a show jury duty on amazon right i love this show um <laughs> i'm happy to hear more people talking about it it's genius in its premise because it's all a gag uh on a a, a juror uh that is part of this on jury duty but he's surrounded by actors and the the, the whole trick of the show is keeping this guy in the box and having him believe that he's really on a jury during this trial. And I love a lot of things about it. One is uh, James Marsden's hilarious in it. He's, he's playing himself having been put on this jury, but like a heightened version of like what a, uh, a Hollywood movie star would be that he's trapped and he's sharing stories. He's a terrific actor. There's, the best and the, the, yeah. the nicer guy just uh so to see him play someone who's maybe not so nice is amazing yeah and then my other favorite part about it is the guy who plays the judge is alan barinholtz who's uh, our friend ike barinholtz's father right who i've known since i was a kid and was a lawyer he was a criminal defense lawyer in chicago who always represented the underrepresented community in chicago 
and is the best guy in the world and is hilarious and loves comedy and movies and acting. And here he is having retired and moved out to Los Angeles. And he is an actor with his, his two sons, uh, Johnny and Ike are also actors. But the whole key to the show is Alan's performance in being the judge because it's got to be so grounded and believable. And he's kind of quarterbacking the whole courtroom because you can't let this guy think for one moment that this show is right. false. And right. Alan is like, he's hilarious and, and incredible. It's really and a so fun the, show. It, within the premises, the cameras are allowed in the courtroom. Is that the idea? Yeah, the cameras are allowed in the courtroom and they can never, all everyone around the juror who's the mark is, they heighten it, but then they've got to pull it back. If stuff starts feeling a little too staged or theatrical, they've got to dial it down. And I've mm -hmm. been hearing stories about this show and sometimes they would have to take like a five hour boring break just to let the reality set back in. So when something really heightened in the show happens, like something kind of crazy where the guy might be like, this can't be real. They were like, let's just make this boring for six hours. So this guy still believes it's real. Cause you would never in show business take a six hour trick. <laughs> it would never happen. It would never happen. I mean, no, if they did that to me, I'd be like, gotta be real gotta be real it's just gotta such an evolved prank show it's just such a deep deep cut yeah it's really great love it so uh download yeah. the app vouch vault uh follow me follow Hayes. i think you're on it Hayes, right if not i'll be on yep. it soon um and uh and uh i think that's episode three we good we're good man oh wait Hayes. I Where's your mustache? You know, my mustache is 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 coming back in. It's it's right here. You can almost see. Oh no, now it's gone again. Podcast called Mustache Tales. Hey, you got to have a mustache. I I I, sh I had one yesterday. I shaved it in solidarity with the WGA. So so I would have you know would have had it. I just had to you know. I'm a union. You're supposed man. to go the you're supposed to go the other way and not shave like you're playing for now the Stanley Cup. Now I'm going to grow it in solidarity with the WGA. That's, right. that's, that's my right. new. That's my new thing. Someday we're going to do this podcast. We're both going to have mustaches, and that's going to be a special episode. Yeah, we'll do it for sweeps. Okay, good. All right, buddy. Good to see you. All right, good to see you, man. Later. Thanks. Mustache tails.